Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the blessing we have of being together this morning to learn more about you. We pray you'd watch over our time together that the things we look at specifically pertaining to Jesus will be clear to us, that we will see them, understand them, and that our our faith and our understanding of you, our closeness to you, our relationship with you will move forward because we've been here today. We pray through Christ these things. Amen. So this is what we have been doing in our class, talking about, oops, talking about these things. The fact that Jesus is fully divine, we've talked about that, talking about his personhood recently. Then we talked about these kinds of things. We talked specifically about the Christological question, how much humanity and how much divinity is there in Jesus. And some of this you think, well, this kind of, those are abstract concepts kind of up in the clouds, doesn't really matter, but it really does matter. How we think of Jesus impacts directly so often the kind of spiritual lives that we have. And if Jesus is Lord, and if he's Lord in certain ways, then what it means for him to be Lord is going to influence us for sure. And then, uh, yeah, we talked about all this. And this is where we were when we finished last time. And we talked some. We actually read through these passages, if you will remember, at the end of class. And we talked about, like from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, how there is a covenant that's established and a vision that God has for the people of Israel, the people of God. There is a, a kind of grand, eternal, all-encompassing vision that God has for where he wants this whole thing to do with humanity to go. Where is all of this headed? In Psalm 2, it talks about how there is a king who is also his son. And he's the one who governs and fulfills the direction of where all of this is headed. And of course, we know that that's Jesus. 2 Samuel 7 is the passage that says that there will be an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, and Jesus is the one who fulfills that vision for the throne. We, we saw how um, Solomon was going to be, build the temple, not, G, uh, not uh, David. And so Solomon's going to build the temple, and God made promises to David about his son and then about the kingship that would come after him. But really, it's Jesus who ends up fulfilling that entire vision of the king. And then we saw this passage from Micah 5, 2, which talks about him being the fulfillment, again, of all of that. So God has his ordained destiny about humankind that he wants to see fulfilled, and Jesus becomes the fulfiller of that. Now, what does that mean for Jesus himself, like the life and ministry of Jesus himself? What does he do that brings this kind of fulfillment about, and how does this fulfillment look in the life of Jesus? And so here are some things that that we traditionally have done, and these are good things for sure. In fact, um, this is so much of what we're talking about right now with John Ortberg's book in terms of the big picture about Jesus and his fulfillment of this God-ordained destiny. What we have often said, and I think this is absolutely true, is that Jesus came for forgiveness and salvation, and he did. And so Paul says, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the worst. Clearly, uh, a, a focus on the salvation of sinful human beings. And Paul using himself as kind of exhibit A. That he's the one who, who most typifies, he would say, sinfulness. And that Jesus came to forgive Paul of his sins. Of course, along with everybody else in the world. But this attitude that Paul has here, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst, I think is the attitude that Paul would like all of us to have. Some sense about us that we recognize that we, that's who we are, certainly after the fall. Humankind is a, a, a people, an entity uh, that is not in line with God's will. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, again, what we've tended to do with that is we say, well, we repent so that we can have our sins forgiven and then we can go to heaven when we die. And what we're maybe focusing on right now with Ortberg is we're trying to say the repentance that takes place leads to the transformation of a life so that I go from, from exemplifying the sinfulness where we would say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. We go from exemplifying that to a person who actually lives out relationship with God and looks way different and does not sin like they used to sin because they're in relationship with God. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And the idea, of course, the way we're trying to kind of look at this right now is that humanity is lost. Humankind is lost. We're all lost. Not just lost in the sense that we are going to hell or something, but lost in the sense that we have no direction. We don't know where we're headed. Um, life is on our own, has no meaning, no fulfillment. But then Jesus comes and he does something drastic to change all that for us and give us relationship with God. So forgiveness and salvation is certainly huge in what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus also comes, and we don't, we don't like to talk so much about this, but he does come for judgment, even as he comes for enlightenment. I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And there is clearly the insinuation that staying in darkness is not a good thing. But we, and we have a chance through Jesus, the light of the world, to be enlightened to the point where we can come out of this darkness because of what Jesus has done. For judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see. You'd almost expect him to say, I've come for judgment so that the sinners can be condemned. But he doesn't say that. The judgment itself has a purpose, and that has to do with blind Seen. So he comes in and evaluates the world and says, not good. There has to be transformation here. There has to be change. And he is the source of the enlightenment and the blindness being taken away so that people can see. And then there's even this line, I have come to bring fire to the earth. It's interesting, in the class I was teaching at Ambrose this week, I had a student who graduate student who said, well, fire there, when it says John the Baptist came to, to give us the Holy Spirit and fire to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, or sorry, 
Jesus, John the Baptist says Jesus will come and baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That uh, the fire there, as far as this person was concerned, is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the fire from uh, Acts chapter 2. And I don't think so, <laughs> since that hadn't happened yet. Uh, like, I think the judgment here is actually a, a judgment, or fire is actually judgment. And so Jesus comes for judgment, to bring fire onto the earth. Fire was uh, perceived as a judging kind of element, where God rains down fire, typically in the mindset of the Jew. And so fire had a different connotation. It was, I think, for judgment. But Jesus, in His coming, separates us from that kind of judgment, where now we're the enlightened ones who can see and who no longer have to endure that kind of, of punishment or judgment. And instead, as we talked about so much last week, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here, now, a completely different thing than just salvation coming at the end. So I'm starting to think that maybe the simplistic way that we sometimes have thought of the mission of Jesus and what he came for needs some correction in our world today. And again, that's so much of what Ortberg is trying to say. And this is all coincidental. I'm doing something different here in terms of uh, talking about the core ideas of theology. But I think this does fit well with what Ortberg's trying to do in his book. So what do we do then in thinking about the mission and ministry of Jesus? And first of all, I would say that Jesus came to bring the kingdom. And that's just so much different than saying that Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. I agree that he came to seek and save that which is lost. But when we start talking about Jesus came to bring the kingdom, we're talking about something different. Now, why is it that I would say this? Like, why is it that I would say this is the preeminent element in the ministry of Jesus? What, what, are, some, what are some evidences that you know about already in Scripture that would take us here to this point? And we can say, well, Jesus came to bring the kingdom. What, what can you think of from Scripture that points in that direction? Okay, yeah, for sure. Like those things that we just looked at, like the stuff from Genesis chapter 12 that we looked at before, the Micah 5-2 passage, the Psalm 2 passage, the Psalm uh, 2 Samuel 7, all that points in that direction, that Jesus comes as the king who sits on David's throne and fulfills this vision. Now, again, it's interesting because if you know, uh, if you know the history here, after Solomon, well, you, you tell me, what happens after Solomon? Like the, Solomon is a king, comes and sits on the throne of David, and he has a very expansive, mighty kingdom in many ways. But what happens after Solomon? The kingdom splits, okay? In addition to the, the kingdom splitting, which is true, there's northern Israel and southern Israel, they have a, a major disagreement. They're trying to figure out who's really supposed to be king. And one group says, well, this guy's king. Another group says, this guy's king. And they end up with time through a long series of events the kingdom splits over who's going to be king. Then what happens? 
Yeah, and, and not uh, all at the same time. Like the northern kingdom actually goes in 722 B.C. at the hand of the Assyrians. The Assyrians come into 722, they wipe out the northern kingdom, carry a bunch of people off to captivity. These are the northern ten tribes. Then in 586, 587 or so, and just think, 722 to 587, okay, what's that, 135 years anyway, something like that, if, I'm, if my math is right. Um, then the, the southern kingdom goes. And they're in captivity. They're in captivity for like 80 years or so, off in Babylon. Where's the king? He's toast. Yeah. He's at least carried off into captivity. Okay, and his, and his kingdom and his reign, you'd have to say, is no more. Now, there were times after this when they come back from the, the captivity, the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. There are times after that when there is a king around and a king on the throne. But for the most part, not. And in fact, for all of the, what, the last, I don't know, 2,200 2, years or so, 2,300 years, something like that, there has been, there has been no king of Israel, unless you want to count Herod or something, but that just doesn't work. Herod was not at all in line with God's will. So where is the fulfillment of the prophecy? Second Samuel said, I'm going to establish your, your son as your king, and the king will reign forever on your throne. Where's the fulfillment of that? And of course, what the prophecy is trying to say is that Jesus is the one who comes as the king and brings then this kingdom. So it's certainly in line with God's history, God's prophecy, that Jesus comes as the one who brings the kingdom. So all of that prophecy leading up to Jesus coming, I think, is evidence. What else is evidence? That Jesus comes to bring the kingdom. John. Um, with the gospel. Is that what you're referring to? Like, we go into the New Testament to talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah. There's great evidence in the New Testament. Everything that Jesus talks about, like all the parables, not the parable of the kingdom, just read through the parable. Yeah, yeah. And then, even when he's when Matthew or one of the gospel writers talking about what Jesus was doing, and we don't actually hear what he said, we see that he's going this community, that community, that community, healing the sick, and talking about the kingdom of God. Yeah. That's, even when we don't hear it, talk about it. They still, still say he's talking. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. It is constant. Like, it's, it's really difficult to get away from the idea that right at the heart of the, mes- at the, of the mission and ministry of Jesus is the kingdom. Yeah, like, if you're going to say, what is Jesus coming for? What is he... What's he preaching about? What's he focusing on? What is he bringing? The answer is not, in some simplified way, well, he's coming to die on the cross for my sins. Now, it is true in some sense, for sure. We looked at those passages. I came to seek and save that which was lost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
Like we just saw those passages. So that is definitely there. You can't just throw that out and say, well, this, you know, that's immaterial or something. That's very significant. But I still think that this is actually the center of the ministry of Christ. So let me show you some evidence. Look at this from Luke 4. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news. Which, what's that word, good news? How do we often translate that word? Gospel. Yeah, it's the word euangelion, which means a proclamation. Uh, and, and, and it came in English eventually to mean good news or gospel. So, but he said, I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that's why I was sent. That's why God sent me. And he kept on preaching the gospel of the kingdom in the synagogues of Judea. Now, this is fascinating, especially in our day and age, because one of the things that uh, especially young people do all the time now is that they equate the message of Jesus with social justice, which is, can be a very good thing. Like, there's a lot of social justice that needs to come out of the message of Jesus and out of the kingdom. But what was Jesus doing that caused people to come and seek him? Do you remember? He's healing. Jesus is doing all kinds of things. He's healing. He's, he's got a social justice ministry going, very powerful social justice kind of ministry going on. And people keep coming to him. And Jesus eventually has to get away from the crowds because they keep pressing on him because he's doing all this healing. And he could have, if Jesus wanted to, he could have stayed right there. He could have sat down and he could have healed people forever. For the rest of his life, he could have just healed people. Certainly for the next three years. He could have just been healing people but he doesn't. Instead, they come to him and say, you know, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus says, well, I have something I've got to get about. And it's not just healing people. And so he is about the kingdom of God. Okay. I think that's very significant that Jesus chooses in that sense the proclamation of the kingdom as a priority in his own ministry above, at this point, anything else, even the healing of people. Now, this is, uh, John almost quoted this a moment ago. Matthew 4.23. We've talked about this several times, but it's still really significant. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, you notice, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. It's a package here. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, and large crowds followed him. Notice that the preaching of the kingdom is right there at the center of his ministry, along with these other things. In fact, I think this is kind of a threefold description of what it is that Jesus is doing. He's teaching about himself, teaching about God, teaching about the kingdom. Then he's proclaiming the kingdom, specifically the presence of the kingdom, saying, the kingdom is here now in me. And then this kingdom that is present has ramifications. It means a transformation of the world. And so there is healing that's going to go on. Sickness is going to be overcome. Demons are going to be cast out. All kinds of evil is going to be overcome because Jesus is now present, bringing the kingdom into this world. So things are changing, and it's because of the presence of the kingdom that they change. Now, this is in Matthew 4.23. Look at 9.35. We've talked about this inclusio before, where you have two statements and their bookends. 
4.23 and 9.35 give us a, a description of what Jesus is doing. And then in between 4.23 and 9.35, Jesus does what it says in these bookends. So Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease. Now, what's interesting is that right now, at least, in those two passages, 4.23 and 9.35, there's no mention of sin. There is no mention of forgiveness. There's no mention of salvation. There's no mention of eternal life. There's no mention of me dying and going to heaven. And I'm not saying that those aren't part of this or important or something. I'm just saying that this is Matthew's description of what Jesus was doing. And the priority there by Matthew in 4.23 and 9.35 is on the kingdom and its impact, its presence, the proclamation of it, and its impact is what is, is focused on here right in the ministry of Jesus. So we're asking the question, what is the mission and ministry of Jesus? And there were some passages before that talked about, well, it's to seek and save the lost. And I think that's right. But I think that has to be seen in the context of the kingdom he himself seems to focus on so much. John mentioned a moment ago, and he's exactly right, that Jesus one of the main ways in which he teaches is through the parables. But if you look at the content of the parables or the focus of the parables, it tends to be on the kingdom. And so turn to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. And I just want you to flip, like, like just look at the parables in Matthew 13. And tell me what they're about. Like, is the first one the parable of the sower? Okay. And then what's after that? Yeah. And then you just keep going. And what is clearly the, the central message and the focus of these parables? And I'm not saying that every single one, but pretty close to, in Matthew 13 anyway, it's the kingdom of heaven. Like that's the focus of the teachings of Jesus in the parables. The parables constitute a sizable portion of his teaching, and that's his focus. Now I want you to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew chapter 5. And look at the first couple of verses. Jesus gathers them, he goes up on a hillside, he sits down, the disciples come to him and he begins to teach. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Yeah, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you go through the Beatitudes, you'll find mention of the kingdom of heaven again. And so Jesus starts this sizable portion of his teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Many would say the greatest teaching in the history of the world. Certainly a teaching that is right at the center of what Jesus is all about. 
And the kingdom is what starts it off. It says, this is what those have who find themselves in God. They receive kingdom. Now look at this one. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. We've done this, looked at this passage many times before, but it's always worth going back and looking at it again. Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. He's teaching. Okay, this is exactly what 423 and 935 in Matthew say he was doing, and he's doing it here. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim gospel, good news, to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which really is the Jubilee. I, I mean, we've talked about this, right? The, the Jubilee, as far as we know historically, there's no evidence that it actually happened. Even though it was something commanded by God, the Jews seem not to have done it from what we can tell. Most likely because some of them were haves and some of them were have-nots. And the haves said, no, nah, I don't think we're going to give this land back. And I don't think we're going to give back all the slaves or anything like that. We're just going to hold on to this. So as far as we know, this was ne never actually implemented. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the, the word kingdom is not found in that particular passage. This is a quotation from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The word kingdom isn't here, but this is the kingdom. Jesus is saying, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what I brought. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And this is all kingdom stuff. I came to bring this. And it's kingdom. Let me show you another example. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Keeps doing that. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, the king who's coming, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Why does John ask that question? Why, why does he ask that question? This is the cousin of Jesus who had the Holy Spirit within him, who leapt in the womb when he was in the presence of Mary because the Lord was in the other womb. Like, what, what is going on here? Why is it John who baptized Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world along the river, why is he asking this question? Greg? Yeah. Yeah, this just doesn't look like what John is expecting. You keep talking about the fact that you are bringing this kingdom. You've, you've referred to yourself as the fulfillment of all of this uh, vision for God's people with you reigning ultimately on the throne. Like the, the, I've been waiting for this and waiting for this. And where is John when he writes this, or when he sends those guys? Where is he? What's going to happen to him in prison? <laughs> They're going to cut his head off. 
John is sitting in prison thinking, this is not what I was thinking. I was not expecting this. I thought that you were going to reign and that you would say to your cousin, come on with me. Let's do this together. And instead, I'm sitting in prison with the potential possibility, of course, that they're going to kill me. And they did. So John is wondering what in the world is going on because this does not look like what I expected. And Jesus says, you go back and you report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the king. I am bringing the kingdom. This is what it looks like. Don't worry. Don't be concerned. Don't think, oh no, what's going on? Don't fall away from me, John. Don't wonder. Because I'm doing exactly what my father sent me to do in bringing the kingdom into the world. Look at this. Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when they say that, could this be the son of David, what are they really asking? Like, that, like they don't mean, could he somehow be the distant descendant of David? Biologically, there's a connection? That's not what they're asking. What are they asking? Yeah, is this the Messiah? Is this the king? Is this the one who's supposed to sit on David's throne? Is this the one? Look at what he just did. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom, ah, there he goes with the kingdom language, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Okay, so you, here you are questioning my kingship and my, and my kingdom. Let me talk to you about kingdoms. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. And, and here's the kicker. This is the key line in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did he drive out demons by the Spirit of God? Did he? Absolutely he did. And so he says to them, if that's what's happening, then the kingdom has, it has to be present. And it is, in fact, present in me. He says. So here we are talking about theological centeredness. We're saying that there is a core, we're calling this the core, there is a core of biblical teaching, of New Testament teaching, of New Testament doctrine, of understanding about who Christ is. There's a core here that we need to, to hold on to and we need to assert, we need to make it a priority for ourselves. This needs to dominate who we are as a church. Our identity needs to come out of this core. 
So someone says, what's the Calgary Church of Christ all about? Well, we want, the, we want the, to be able to say, we're about the core ideas and relationship that God wanted us to have with himself. Like, we're not so interested in the peripheries, peripheral matters. What we're really interested in is getting the heart of things absolutely right. We want to make sure that we've nailed this so that we are identified with the very core of what Jesus came for. That's what we're trying to say here. And I think that we just saw it. That this is the core. And sometimes we, we identify ourselves in different ways. We even do this as people, of course. We identify ourselves in all kinds of different ways. But are we really getting to the heart of the issue of who we really are? So what did Jesus do with respect to the kingdom? Well, he proclaimed it. He preached it. It was right at the center of everything that he taught and everything that he preached. It's interesting. If I said to you, what's right at the center of Paul? What's the center of Paul's preaching? You probably would say, well, Jesus is at the center. Right? The salvation that Jesus brings is at the center. The relationship that we're to have with God is right at the center. I would say that that's all true of Paul. But for Jesus himself, because there was not yet cross, it's the kingdom that is right at the center of his proclamation. And of course, I think that means that when Paul is talking about Jesus, that he's not talking about anything different. But this is still right at, this notion of kingdom is right at the center. And, and, you, and Paul would have to be saying then that, that the ministry and mission of Jesus that I'm talking about is going to be centered also right on the kingdom because that's what Jesus was trying to bring about. He brought it and he made it a reality, fulfilling it in a preliminary way. We won't do this right now, but if you were to look at Luke 17, 21, it says, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says. And his point is, is that this is not something we're just waiting for, but that we have a chance to live in and experience right now. By the way, we've talked about this before, but the word kingdom, what does that mean? Like I've said, it's not really so much a noun. It is a noun, like officially the word kingdom is a noun. But what's its definition? What's that? And so it's a possession, right? And, and I, you know, it's always uncomfortable when you say to somebody in the class, no, that's not really where I was going. But this is exactly the point, okay? Because we do tend to think in terms of a kingdom being something that belongs to, some, to the king. And so it's a, it's a group of people or it's a place over which he reigns. But not now. Not, not with this word right now. That word kingdom is, even though it is officially a noun, it's, it functions very verbally. Because it's not just the things over which a king reigns or possesses, it's actually a power. It's actually a dynamic 
The word basileia in Greek means rain. It means impact and presence and power. So that the kingdom of God is not what God possesses. It's what God does. It's what he impacts. And so it's the reign of God, which is really at the heart of the concept of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus proclaims this, but then he spreads its influence, bringing others with him so that when he left, others would continue it. It's a dynamic presence and power of Jesus bringing God's presence and power into the world. That's really what kingdom is all about. So we're not talking about a group of people over which he rules, like the church, or a place, like heaven. We're talking about God's presence and power and impact in the world. And that's what Jesus says we have now, that we're part of that presence and power and impact. That's why when he starts describing it, he describes it as the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the demons are cast out. Why? Because it's more of a power and an influence, an impact, is the kingdom of God more than anything else. And then finally, he gave himself completely to its purposes, which ends, of course, in his death. He gives himself ultimately in death to this. And he wants very much, I think, for us to give ourselves to it as well. And so that's why this needs to be right at the center of who we are, at the center of our theology. Because Jesus is calling us to give ourselves to the kingdom in the same way that he himself gave himself to the kingdom. And when the church does this, then the kingdom of God is present among us in a dynamic way. All right. We'll move on from here. Thanks, everybody.